Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The last of the deer hunters had come through for the day, and I was closing the store, counting the cash and watching the snow turn the gravel parking lot into a dappled expanse of white and gray. Someone had abandoned a car there a few weeks back, an ancient brown Subaru that was gradually succumbing to a shroud of whiteness, its tires deflating. A silence wound its way through the pines, slipping on the hidden frozen creeks, drifting quickly on the wind. The hunters brought it in their boots, brushed it from their hats, felt the remnants of it on their lips and fingers when they ordered. The words were soft and gruff, as if this were no place for sound. Hi, this is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Sarah St. Vincent, author of Ways to Hide in Winter, a novel set in the starkly beautiful rugged Blue Ridge Mountains of Pennsylvania. It's 2007, and 27-year-old Kathleen is recuperating from a horrible accident that leaves her in constant pain. She works at a campground lodge, serving burgers and hot drinks to hunters and hikers and trying to stay out of sight of everyone who knows her. One day, a mysterious stranger appears. He's inappropriately dressed for the weather and speaks in an indistinguishable foreign accent. Over the course of the weeks, Kathleen befriends the stranger and begins to learn about his life, former life in Uzbekistan. As she begins to suspect that he's not what he says he is, she also confronts her own distortion of the truth. And now I welcome author Sarah St. Vincent to join the discussion. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So first, why don't you tell us about how you came to write this book? Sure. Well, I was in my third year of law school, which is not an environment normally very conducive to writing imaginative fiction. But um, I was uh, in Michigan and one night to de-stress, I went ice skating at the university's rink and I fell. Um, And in falling, I shattered my left shoulder. Basically, I broke it both horizontally and vertically. And so I went through this experience of pain and surgery and painkillers Um, But, you know, came through that and was then sitting in my law school's cafe one day with, you know, a notebook in front of me. And I just had this vision of a woman standing at the edge of a frozen lake, um, a lake near where I grew up, this kind of forested park with snow around her. And she's in a tattered gray coat, like the one I had at the time because I was a broke student. And she's looking out at the frozen lake and she's thinking about walking out onto the ice. And I thought, you know, this woman is is broken in some way she's gone through pain like physical pain emotional pain you know and here she is standing at the edge of this lake who is she what is she doing there what has brought her to this point and so i just started writing that scene which is now actually i think in the middle of the first chapter of the book and built out this story um and kept writing it the book stayed with me um through multiple jobs in multiple countries and you know over time figured out what exactly I wanted to say with it, who these characters were. It's partly a love letter to my hometown uh, in rural Pennsylvania. 
because it kind of kept me connected to the place, excuse me, connected to the place, even as I traveled far away. Um, but that's really how the book came to be was with a, a vision of its main character. Hmm. So you have a pretty varied career going on. Can you talk a little bit about how your work affects your writing? Sure. Well, and I can say, I think actually the writing affects the work. Um, I am the researcher on national security, surveillance, and law enforcement at Human Rights Watch, which is a great organization. I I love the work. Um, And I basically do investigations about whether the government is violating our fundamental rights. And to me, I've been working on national security issues on and off for a long time. And I see them often as about power and power relationships um, and consent, things like that. Domestic violence, which this book is very much about, even though that term is never used, is also often about power and consent or lack thereof. And so I think actually working for seven years on a book about a vulnerable person and domestic violence and the way that she uses privacy, like she basically isolates herself in this very private place as a way of reclaiming her dignity and rebuilding her life. And I think that the insights I gained from thinking about those things, domestic violence, dignity, power, um, actually is beneficial to my national security work. And so sometimes to me, it's odd that the things I write are usually not about the things I work on professionally, but I think that the same gender conscious awareness that infuses the book actually benefits the things I do at Human Rights Watch and, and prior to that as well. Hmm. So your title, How to Hide in Winter, seems connected to three of the main characters. How did you choose the title? Did you choose the title first and then the characters? Yeah, so Ways to Hide in Winter was actually something of a a compromise choice. (laughs) Um, I never had a, oddly enough, I never had a, a title for the book that I very firmly loved. And so I had kind of a back and forth with the publisher. And I thought, you know, winter, the, the landscape is very much part of the book, this rural central Pennsylvania forested landscape in the middle of winter. It's beautiful, but it's isolated. It's harsh. And so I liked the idea of winter being in there. And there are several characters who are hiding in different ways, hiding from the authorities, hiding from their past, hiding from a very judgmental town. Um, and so I think the the title does connect to to those characters, but also to this idea of winter as it's a kind of liminal space. It's a pause. There was something before winter and there will be something after winter. Like they will eventually grow and change and perhaps leave this place. And so I think the title for me connects to both their vulnerability and the fact that they're now kind of trapped where they are, but that eventually somehow, some way there's going to be a thaw and they're going to have to figure out where to go, how to move on. Yeah. So you set the stage of winter, and it's very beautiful, very descriptive. And then you drop the stranger into the closed campground. How did that happen? How did he come to be dropped off there? Well, I think that, so the stranger, as we learn pretty quickly, is someone from the former USSR, specifically Uzbekistan, who came to the US under somewhat murky circumstances, claimed asylum, that is protection from being returned to Uzbekistan. His claim failed. For reasons that we find out later in the book, he has done something bad in the past. Um, but what I what I liked was this idea of two characters who would have very few preconceived notions of each other. Um, the character from Uzbekistan, Daniel, might initially expect the other main character, Kathleen, 
Um, this woman who's gone through so much pain and domestic violence and is now rebuilding her life, working at this very small, isolated rural general store, he might have had some kind of gender-based conceptions of her, but quickly finds out she's this very smart, determined, um, hardened person. Um, and I think actually is, is really interesting and would someday like to engage with the world. And she, I think, sees him as this total mystery. Um, she's heard of Uzbekistan, but knows nothing about it. And so I liked the idea of two characters who are in a vulnerable and in some ways dangerous place um, and who turn to each other for protection. But then Kathleen at least quickly comes to have questions about Daniel and who he really is. And then the book becomes about what are the limits of compassion? When is it our job to forgive someone and when is it not? Um, And so I can't say that, I, I can't say that that was when I sat down that that was really a, a strictly logical choice. It was more inspiration than anything. Um, but as I was writing the book, I really enjoyed the dynamic between those characters, these people getting to know each other, getting to have warmth for each other, despite their differences. And then realizing that, Oh wait, they're real people. Um, and they're going to have challenges with that. Of course they're not real people, but in the dynamic. Right. Right. Kathleen is definitely hiding. She's striving to, she's, trying to avoid everybody that she knows. So why doesn't she just pick up and leave? Uh, You know, so I want to say first, this is a question that's often asked about people who are in violent relationships. And I want to say first that leaving is a dangerous time for many people in those situations. Um, It's a time when the abuser is most likely to be violent and deadly um, and dangerous. Leaving can also be hard for people in relationships for many of the same reasons that it's hard for Kathleen, even though she's out of it. Her husband is is deceased at the beginning of the book. She has virtually no money. She has virtually no support network. Um, The situation with her husband alienated a lot of the people she might have drawn on for support. Her family, unfortunately, is not able to help her. And she is, again, very isolated. It's a rural area. There is no public transportation. There is no easy way to get out. She's got a car, but she does not have a college degree. Um, She really, it's a tough choice for her either way. Staying in her hometown is hard, where she feels as if she's being constantly judged and reminded of the past. And leaving also presents the question of where would she go? What skills does she have that would help her build a life elsewhere? Mm -hmm. Uh, she's also in constant pain from a horrific accident. Um, Absolutely. Right. So why, why isn't she, why does she have to buy her pain medicine from a shady character instead of being treated by doctors? Ah, wait, it's 2007. Right. Yeah. Um, Not to get all political, but um, Kathleen is working for, you know, again, tiny little general store, but a place that's fundamentally exploiting her. She doesn't have health insurance. She's earning at that time, I think it would have been about five fifteen an hour minimum wage. And so it's a place of comfort for her, but it's also a place that doesn't give her those kinds of resources that would really let her rebuild her life. And as she starts to really develop this opioid addiction resulting from the pain, um, yeah, she turns to she turns to the informal market, as, as you might say. She, she finds someone who's willing to sell them to her, and that in turn winds up putting her in other forms of danger. Mm-hmm. As it still continues to do for people who do the same thing mm-hmm. now. What can you say about her dealer? You know, so uh, when a freelance editor who was wonderful um, first read the book, she said, oh, Jerry, Jerry's his name. Jerry's a monster. And I thought, you know, Jerry to me is, is not a monster. He's someone who you know, for a somewhat peripheral character, I tried to make him as human as possible. 
Um, he's someone who's not facing very many good choices either. He has a bad back. That's why he's been prescribed opioids. He's been laid off from his job. Um, his wife has left him. He's kind of starting to come a little unhinged and be more and more of a threat as we see through the book and to be more really like explicitly threatening. Um, but I, I like to think that this is a book hopefully that doesn't judge its characters. No one in here is purely bad or purely good. I think they're all complex people with very real motivations and complications. Mm-hmm. Um, then she has a best friend, even though her husband did try to isolate her from everyone. Yeah. She has a, a best friend from childhood named Beth, who's maybe my second favorite character in the book, um, who is one of those friends who will stick with you, refuse to go away, even when you are in some ways trying to drive them away or when your abusive partner is trying to drive them away. Um, and Beth is trapped in her own way. She is kind of functional single parent. Her husband is serving in Iraq um, when the book when the book opens. And you know, she I think she's the person who's always there for Kathleen, but is also willing to be explicit with her and say, "Here's what I see going on with you." And I think that you know, I know making the change is hard, but I think you've got to make it, or you're going to be stuck here forever. And you could do more than this. You know, you need to find a way to go. Um, but I think that Beth is also, she's fun, she's funny. Um, and I think that people might mistake her bubbly personality initially as ditziness, but she's not a ditz. Um, she's actually got, she's a very intelligent person who's also in very difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. And she's your second favorite character. So who's your first favorite character? <laughs> My favorite character is Kathleen's grandmother, um, with whom Kathleen lives. The grandmother... You know, just as, as villains, I think, are probably more fun to write. The grandmother's not a villain, but she is very, oh, she's she just has a, a, a kind of take no prisoners, very clear view of life, um, somewhat sour view of life. And she is very blunt. Um, and she sometimes cracks these jokes that at least I find funny. Um, and so I like her, again, kind of uncompromising, clear-eyed, view of life and her willing to say what she her willingness to say what she thinks even if that's not palatable to people and i think you know she is ornery um but again she's just yeah she is very straight up and that made her a lot of fun to write but she's also killing herself by smoking well again i mean addiction um yeah so the grandmother again when we meet her is being treated like being told she has emphysema um and so part of what the grandmother starts to tell kathleen is essentially i'm on my way out um, don't stay here and take care of me. But for Kathleen, when, when apparently no one else is willing to step in and take care of her grandmother, who she loves very much, you know, Kathleen's standing there saying, well, I'm not walking away from you. Um, and so again, it becomes this very difficult choice of when do you decide I am going to do what's right for me? And when do you say, well, no, I'm taking care of my family member. I can't go even though she's telling me to go. And in fact, her telling me to go is just making this harder. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of people that are both good and bad, as as you said. What about Martin, Kathleen's boss? Is he fundamentally a good person? Yeah, well, it's, so he's um, Kathleen oddly actually doesn't have a boss. She has a kind of absentee store owner. Um, but yeah, so Martin runs the hostel next door. And I should say the setting is real. It's set in Pine Grove Furnace State Park in central Pennsylvania. You can go there. It's beautiful. Um, it is right next to the site of, and this is true, a former World War II era prisoner of war camp for German and Japanese officers whom the War Department 
flew over to the United States for interrogation. And that winds up showing up in the book. Martin is a local guy. Um, I, I think also, you know, with perhaps a spark of romantic interest in Kathleen at times, but also kind of a desire to see her do well, no matter what the circumstances and also has a troubled past. And in his own way, by being this very kind, jovial person is trying to make up for that very troubled past um, and kind of makes decisions in that light, including whether to shelter the stranger, Daniil, even when we start to realize that Daniil is maybe not who we think he is. Yeah, let's talk some more about him. He's really an interesting character. Why is he so proficient in English? And let's talk more about him. What can you say? Well, sure. Um, Daniel, as as I've written him, majored in English uh, at the university and is a very cosmopolitan person. When I was in grad school, we called them the Davos class, um, the, you know, kind of the the global elites um, who in some ways maybe have more in common perhaps with each other um, than they do with other people in, you know, what we think of as, as their home country. So he's this very sophisticated, very educated person. And Kathleen, I think, initially is quite intimidated by that because she is this you know, rural American woman who, as I said, never finished a college degree, um, had a really disadvantaged background. Um, and she connects us with this cosmopolitan, very foreign seeming person. Um, and so the book does sometimes get into issues briefly of social class. Um, and that shows up for Kathleen in various ways. And it's part of what winds up frustrating her because I think she starts to realize she is smart and there is no objective reason why she shouldn't be able to go out, you know, have, have the opportunities that other people get to have. Mm-hmm. Um, so Daniel's father was Russian, but he was raised in Uzbekistan. Was there some reason you chose that country for your character to be from? I, yes, I have to be careful not to give a spoiler here. Um, let me just say that Uzbekistan has a very troubled past when it comes to human rights abuses. Um, and shortly before the time when the novel is set, the government had massacred a large number of protesters um, in a city called Andijan. Um, the government was also allegedly very severely repressing dissenters, mistreating prisoners, um, engaging in a whole host of, if you go back and read the State Department human rights reports from those times or you know other human rights sources, they're pretty graphic um, about the kinds of things that were going on in Uzbekistan at that time. And so for Kathleen, when she starts to make, when she starts to understand what Daniel's past is, that starts to resonate for her as a survivor of some pretty horrific forms of interpersonal violence. So that's largely why Uzbekistan. Okay. And then why 2007? Well, I wanted to pick a moment where the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts were still very much at the forefront of the news and the public mind. Um, it's also it kind of, it's the end of the George W. Bush era. And so it's a particular national moment before the changes that are going to start to come with Obama, although it's not at all a, a partisan book. Um, and I think the characters themselves would probably identify in different ways. Um, also, Uzbekistan itself was going to go through some major changes in the years that followed, um, including with the death of the, the longtime ruler. And so I chose to set it in a particular moment where also I felt it was plausible for Kathleen not to have a cell phone 
um, and for her access to the internet to be limited and through the library, which is actually true for a lot of disadvantaged people in the United States even today. Um, and so there were there were a variety of reasons for for setting it at that time. Um, I just I think I wanted to capture a a moment um, where it's still possible to really be quite off the grid, um, and before the changes that start to you know the end of of the sort of global war on terror as we thought of it then, with all the complications that it had, and before we entered a, a new national moment um, with Obama. Mm-hmm. Just one more character that we haven't discussed, um, John. Yeah. Uh, John is someone who offers Kathleen essentially an opportunity to change her life. And then she has to decide whether that's what she wants. John is someone who reappears in Kathleen's life. When you grow up in a small town, I grew up in a a village of 1200 people. Um, There are people I've known literally since I was five. And, you know, it's hard to describe that relationship when you spend your entire childhood and young adulthood with the same small group of people. Um, so John is one of those people. He's a trucker. Um, he's a very smart, thoughtful, sensitive guy and reappears in Kathleen's life just as she's starting to, you know, if we're going to use a seasonal metaphor, it's like she's the seed that has a sprout and she's starting to come up above ground and think, all right, my best friend is right. What am I really going to do with my life? Maybe staying here and protecting myself is actually not the answer. John is frankly Kathleen's chance to get married and have a settled, comfortable life. And she, as the book progresses, is going to need to make a decision about whether she thinks that's the answer. Yeah. So all in all, this is such a rich story with so much. We're talking world problems, family problems, and uh, no solutions, but lots of struggle. People growing from the struggle, I think. It was really a wonderful story. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, would you tell us, please, what's next for you? Ah, oh, well, um, I have a second novel that uh, is currently um, sitting with my agent, and we'll see what happens with it. It's tentatively titled King of Denmark, and it features a uh, a father of two in Michigan who is a forklift operator and also at a fairly vulnerable place in his life who falls in with an armed anti-government group and faces some of his own choices and winds up getting drawn into the power of something he didn't quite understand at first, but that's actually quite dangerous. Um, I also have potentially a book of poems that I'm, you know, again, like still sending out to other people. So I've got a, a, a couple of projects on the horizon, um, but I've really been, delighted by the response to this one. I really love the way that readers have responded to it. And it's been really great to have the chance to discuss it with people like you. And all of our listeners at the New Books Network. So thank you so much for being with me today, Sarah. It was lovely talking to you. And I wish you the best in all of your endeavors. Well, thank you. And thank you to your listeners as well. Thanks again for joining me today. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network. Today, I've been speaking to Sarah St. Vincent about her new book, Ways to Hide in Winter. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creative community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. 
sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join. Thank you.